0: This is They Create Worlds, Episode 73, Adventuring in the Arcade. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Well, we mentioned it at the end of the episode for the last couple of episodes, but now we're going to say it at the beginning. Yes, that thing we keep forgetting to do
1: because I'm always like, I need to do this. And then we record the episode, often very rushed at the last minute, and then it's like it's forgotten and then it's too late.
0: But there's something that's happened. Something horrible. Horribly exciting.
1: (laughs) That's right. As some of our listeners that go all the way back to the very beginning of this thing may remember from when we first introduced ourselves, one of the whole points of everything that I've been doing in terms of researching and interpreting and understanding this crazy video game industry was that I was planning to write a series of three books covering the vast, expansive history of the industry across all platforms and across the entirety of the world. I am pleased to announce for the first time in this forum that I now have a book deal, a three-book deal, with the academic press, CRC Press, to actually publish said three-volume history. So it's going to be a real book from a real publisher that will be coming out sometime in the next couple of years, I would hope. My due date for the book with the publisher is June of next year, and I don't know how long it'll take them to turn around. Maybe it'll be out by the end of 2019. Maybe it'll be more like the middle of 2020. But the point is, it's coming. It's for real. Contract signed and everything. Fancy.
0: But we're not here to talk about your book. Oh. We're here to talk about something else, something that people in the States aren't really that familiar with, but people in Europe and elsewhere in the world are probably very aware of, and that is the arcade adventure genre.
1: That's right. As a genre, it's not the most well defined. Part of what we're going to do here is really kind of take a look at what one might call an arcade adventure and what might be some of the hallmarks of that. As a practical matter, it's another way of saying action adventure game. And action adventure games in the United States or in Japan would generally be categorized as something like The Legend of Zelda or like the original adventure game on the Atari VCS that combines some element of twitch response to what's going on to the screen with some degree of exploration or collection or that kind of inventory stuff that you would do in a traditional text or point-and-click adventure. If we want to get really technical, the term arcade adventure is just a synonym for action adventure. In my opinion, when you examine the games of Europe, and particularly the United Kingdom, that are called action adventures or arcade adventures, there really is a distinct genre that developed, specifically in Britain, and the continent on home computers available in those regions that is very distinct from something like a Zelda. I think it's fair to categorize these as their own genre, and the the term arcade adventure is uh, as good a term as any to do that. It kind of combines arcade-like action with something more cerebral as well. It's not always inventory management or ability management. Sometimes it's just puzzle solving. But either way, there's more to it than just your standard run and jump and shoot that you would find in in an arcade game like a platform game or a running gun.
0: Do you think this has something largely to do with the fact that in Britain and in the rest of Europe, consoles never really took off in the beginning and PCs like the ZX Spectrum, were really the ones that sort of dominated. And you had all of these homebrew software and people who were very cerebral because they had to know how to program these systems in order to even have a game to play.
1: Absolutely. That's a big part of it. We did talk about the arcade adventure and go into a little bit of history of the arcade adventure when we did our History of British Software episode. A little bit of this will be repeat from that episode, though we will go in more depth today. But that's exactly the reason something like this developed. And it also developed due to hardware limitations as well. As we said in our earlier British episodes, there really was no console market in the United Kingdom or on the European continent in the 1980s. It really wasn't until around 1990, 1991 that there was a real market there. Now, there were consoles there before that, of course. The Atari 2600 made it over. I think the Intellivision made it over. I know the ColecoVision made it over. Certainly, both the NES and the Sega Master System made it over before the 1980s were over. These systems made it to Europe, but they were very expensive. They were expensive largely because you had to add import costs of some kind on top of just the regular cost. And these were expensive things even in the United States. I mean, an Atari VCS was nearly $200 and uh, $200 in early 1980s money, so probably closer to four or $500 in today's money. Something as primitive as a VCS was costing you just as much as a PlayStation 4 might cost you today, but for much, much less interactivity, play appeal, whatever you want to call it. The games still cost 60, 70, 80 dollars a piece. Well right, the games cost more because it was of course the cartridge medium, which is a very expensive medium. so the games back then were costing 30 or forty dollars, which sounds like okay, well that's what we pay for a CD game today, but no, because it's 30 or forty dollars again in uh, early 1980s money, and so you're probably talking about games being like 80 bucks. I don't have the inflation calculator in front of me, but my guess is it's about double from that period. I mean, talking 80 bucks for a game that, again, even though some of those games are considered real classics today, the gameplay is rather limited if you're just looking at it in terms of the cost per minute of play that you're getting out of that. This stuff weren't cheap.
0: (laughs) So that's where really the appeal of PC hardware comes into play. Yeah, I can spend that same amount of money I'm going to spend on a console, but I can get a PC with more capabilities, more functionality, and I can do some questionably legal things like, hey, my friend over there bought this game. Let's put it on this handy cassette tape I have. And then I have a copy of that game. Fantastic. We're all having fun. Or maybe me, Bob, Susan, and Charlie, we're all going to pitch in 20 bucks each in order to buy one PC game, and then we're all going to copy it, and all of us have the game. It's great.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's something that happened, especially starting more in the middle of the decade, when you had two cassette tape decks starting to become more common where you can put a cassette in deck A and transfer it over to set B. That's something that really started becoming more common in kind of the mid-80s. And so that made, that really made copying a snap. Even if you were just buying your games yourself, even if you weren't pirating them, exactly, you could sell a cassette tape for a heck of a lot less than a cartridge because your cost of goods wasn't so high and you didn't have to commit to such a large order up front. The British market was very much, as we've already discussed, a PC market, microcomputer market. Generally speaking, more primitive microcomputers than in the U.S. I mean, the ZX Spectrum, which was such a dominant machine, was really much more primitive than the graphical computers that were in the U.S., particularly the Commodore 64 and the Atari 8-bits. The Commodore 64 also did come over to the United Kingdom, but ZX Spectrum was still a big deal, even though it was more primitive. It's really the nature of the ZX Spectrum that made this particular brand of platforming, this particular arcade adventure type thing, rather useful in the context of the market. Because the ZX Spectrum did not scroll well. We'll be, of course, putting several games in the show notes, several of these arcade adventure style games in the show notes, and you'll see when you look at it that the games are pretty slow. Instead of scrolling, they usually use a flick screen technique where you go to the edge of the screen and then it loads in the next screen. It's not like the Commodore 64, which has uh, scrolling registers and hardware sprites and all of this great stuff that makes life wonderful for scrolling. No, it doesn't scroll very well at all. So games on the ZX Spectrum in particular essentially had to have a lot of interest on each screen. There's not going to be the capability to do those kinds of rapid run and jump platform games like a Super Mario Brothers or the scrolling shooters and running guns that are in the arcade. Not that some of them weren't converted to the ZX Spectrum because they certainly were, but that was not the Spectrum's strength. It was much better if you kept as much of the action on a single screen as possible. Now, early arcade games were single screen. So in terms of the very early products that were on the ZX Spectrum, which tended to be derived from arcade games, that was fine because it's single screen games and you're playing them on a single screen. Well, as games in the arcade and games on the Commodore 64 that's a competing platform become more complex and become worlds that take up multiple screens, that single screen gameplay is not going to cut it anymore. You're going to want something that has more gameplay value that matches what's going on in other mediums. But you can't have each of those screens just flash past you in the blink of an eye because it's so slow. I mean, if you only have a couple of encounters per screen, it's just not going to feel like much of a game. So you want bigger worlds, but you want a lot going on in every location. Because that's the best way to maximize gameplay based on the hardware limitations. So naturally, rather than doing a fast-moving platformer like a Super Mario Brothers, where the objective is to just get from point A to point B, clear the stage, you're going to want each screen to be its own kind of little challenge, and adding some form of puzzle or item collection to that individual screen challenge just makes that gameplay per screen even deeper and makes it feel like you're getting more value for your product. So really, I think the reason that the arcade adventure, as we're going to define it, was unique to the United Kingdom and to the European continent is because of the limitations of that ZX Spectrum, which is the platform on which many of the most fondly remembered and most well-regarded arcade adventures reside.
0: So obviously we're going to have to touch on a bunch of these games. The question is which one to start with first. My suggestion would be a game that has been heard of not only in the UK and Europe, but also in the United States.
1: Sure. You can trace the entire beginning of the arcade adventure genre actually to an American game. Really? Absolutely. That game is Minor 2049er. We may or may not have mentioned that one before. I believe we did. We talked a little bit about the arcade adventure in our British software episode, and so I think we brought that up then. Some of this will, as I said, be repeat, but we're going to go into just a little more depth on it here. Minor 2049er was a platform game made by a fellow named Bill Hogue, who founded his own little company, First Star Software, in order to publish on the Atari 8-bit computers. With Minor 2049er, what he really did was he took two of his favorite arcade games, Donkey Kong and Pac-Man, and he smushed them together into one. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, it's a platforming game. I mean, there's ladders, there's jumping, there's running, there's all this moving around to traverse platforms, avoid enemies, just like a Donkey Kong. Single screen game. From Pac-Man, what he took was this idea that you needed to traverse the entire stage. Of course, Pac-Man, in the maze, you have to clear all the dots to move on to the next screen. And Since the dots take up essentially every inch of the play field, what you're really having to do is traverse the entire screen before you can move on to the next screen. So with Minor 2049 or what the objective is in each level, and there are multiple levels, but each one is just a single screen, the objective is to traverse every single bit of every level. We'll put this, of course, in the show notes, but the platforms in Minor 2049 Thousand they're kind of hollow. They're kind of, I don't know exactly what I'm trying to describe, but they're not solid colored. They're kind of mixed. Basically, you're turning all of the platforms into a solid color. Each time you step on a part of the platform, it turns into a fully solid color. And once you've done that throughout the entire level then the level's over and you move on to the next level. It's not an arcade adventure. It's, it's a platform game. But it's a platform game with a certain element of strategy to it because you're not just navigating from point A to point B. Just like a maze game, you're being like, okay, what's the best way to clear everything without the bad guys getting me? So that's Minor 2049er. There probably are not really a lot of people in the United Kingdom that see that game. I mean, it was ported to other systems, so they undoubtedly saw it on other systems besides the Atari 8-bits, but the entire 8-bits were not particularly popular in the United Kingdom. There was one guy, one of these bedroom coders, Matthew Smith, who was much more in tune with what was going on in the North American marketplace and the U.S. marketplace than a lot of other people. He had a TRS-80, for instance. Now, Minor 2049er wasn't a TRS-80 game because that thing could barely do graphics. You couldn't do a game like Minor 2049er on that. But, I mean, he owned a TRS-80, which was not a common computer in Britain. That was an American computer, and he was kind of up on what was going on on American computers. So Matthew Smith, teenager, saw this Minor 2049er game and decided that he would make his own kind of similar game called Manic Minor. Manic Miner is a pure platform game. It's not what you would call an arcade adventure. These are kind of the steps leading up to this idea of the arcade adventure. Manic Miner is a platform game similar in some ways to Manic Miner in that it's single screen and all of that. But it is purely, it is actually a get from point A to point B game. You have to navigate kind of through the whole screen. There's not an objective to cover every square inch of the screen like there is in Minor 2049er, but there are several flashing objects in each level that you actually have to collect before the exit to the level will actually open up. It's not the exact same thing that you see in 2049er in which every square inch has to be covered However, that idea that you have to move around various parts of the level in order to accomplish something, that is definitely something that is taken from Minor 2049 or with the collection of these various items. So the idea of having to navigate a complete space kind of comes from Minor 2049er, and obviously so does the minor theme (laughs) and the platforming theme. I mean, he liked other platformers in the arcade and whatnot too, but obviously Minor 2049er was a big part of this. It's a game where you have to get from point A to point B. You start on one side of the screen, like in the upper left corner, and you have to get down to the lower right. You have to avoid obstacles, enemies, all of this stuff, while collecting all of the items to open the exit. Uh, and when you get through one screen, you go to the next screen and you go through a succession of screens, individual levels to get to the end of the game. It's very whimsical. It's got kind of that British surrealist humor thing going on in it. So some of the enemies get quite bizarre. <laughs> we'll see that in the show notes, of course. It's got a nice sense of whimsy. It's got kind of decent jumping mechanics. It's, it's really hard. It's challenging. It's challenging. That does really well. I mean, that is one of the true foundational games of the British software industry generally, quite frankly. Came out in 1983, so the industry had already been going for a couple of years. But this was one of the first homegrown games that basically said, look at this. It is awesome. We must buy it. We must play it. It was a huge success in the context of the times. Where do you go from there? Clearly, a game this big requires a sequel a game that's successful just doing the same thing again is really not going to be enough people will just see that as more of the same i mean you could do another 15 16 20 30 50 levels of the same type of gameplay but i mean at that point you're basically repeating yourself right how do you move beyond that well first of all you do create a lot more rooms a lot more individual levels But then instead of just having each one be its own self-contained thing, you make each one part of a larger world. You make them interconnected. You can move from room to room. You can go forward. You can go backwards. You can go down. You can go up and discover different rooms all connected together. Well, as we said before, this is on the ZX spectrum, so you can do that. But it's not like you're going to be doing it in a Mario style where you're just whisking through it. You know, each screen, like I said, has to hold a certain amount of interest. So how do you make a game like that hold interest screen to screen when it's going to be fairly slow moving? The answer is you make it a scavenger hunt. And so that's how we get from Minor 2049er or Manic Minor, which are very clearly platform games even if they do have some degree of strategy in the way that you negotiate the levels to something that we might call an arcade adventure, which is not just the action element, but it's also the element of discovery of exploration of having to move through all these various rooms and then collect things within those rooms. So jet set Willy takes place in a house. It's uh, only loosely <laughs> relatable as an actual domicile. A lot of the rooms that are connected to each other are very fanciful and it's not like it really has a real house floor plan. But It's it has, a fun house. Yeah, but it has bathrooms and bedrooms and other kind of rooms you'd expect in a house, kitchens, and, and then it also has
0: more kind of bizarre spaces. You've never been in the entertaining, shady carnival fun houses. <laughs>
1: Right, and our good friend Minor Willie, who has now risen to meteoric success, I think Matthew Smith is putting a bit of himself in this one, has got the big house now, you know, all the stuff he did in the first game has made him very wealthy, so he has this big house now, he's a partier now, he's had a big party, and had everybody over, and they all made a big mess, and he passes out in his bathroom, And then he wakes up in the bathroom, and all he wants to do is go to bed, because he's had a long night of partying. But his maid, housekeeper or whatever, will not let him go to bed until he cleans up his darn mess. So there are objects scattered throughout his mansion, and he has to collect all of the objects and return them to his housekeeper, so that he can
0: go to sleep. Sounds (laughs) fanciful.
1: Yes, obviously uh, plot in in some of these games is not really there, <laughs> going to be their strongest suit. And of course, it's got that kind of British surrealist thing going on again. Matthew Smith did get a lot of money very fast because Manic Miner was a huge hit. Anecdotal evidence does suggest that he did become a bit of a partier and did become a bit wild. So I think he was sneaking some commentary on his own story there. He didn't have a big house, (laughs) but the rest of it I think was a little commentary on his own situation. He actually left the company that published Manic Miner Bug Bite. We talked about them in the software episode because they were one of the very first British software houses, and joined with a couple of other people to found uh, his own company called Software Projects. He wasn't the most diligent worker during this time period. He definitely liked the new lifestyle that his sudden riches afforded. And remember, he's he's a teenager. What do you expect? (laughs) Exactly. I mean, these guys are... Success can hit you weird no matter when you have it, but success hits you weirder when you're young and you don't really know what the value of things is yet. He really was having trouble getting the game finished, and it actually shipped in a very buggy state. They corrected most of the bugs in uh, subsequent revisions, but basically it got to the point where they had to ship it, (laughs) and so there was not much time for testing. So it has bugs, and it's also very, very hard. I mean, really, really hard, harder than the first one, because testing really wasn't much of a thing back then, and if you're creating a game and you're playing it all the time and you know the game very well, then, well, I can get through it. And actually, in the case of this one, I'm, I'm not even sure, according to what he said in more recent interviews, he couldn't even get through everything. Uh-oh. But he still released it. <laughs> that was kind of the way the British industry was. I mean, it was the way the American industry was, too, in all fairness, especially at the very beginning. I, I think the American industry matured faster. There were more professional software people involved from the very beginning, Infocom, for instance was a company that was put together by actual software professionals from MIT. And so they understood the importance of testing. So I think the American industry matured faster. British industry was a little wilder. But the important thing about Jet Set Willy, released in 1984, and was another big hit just on the strength of Manic Miner alone, if nothing else, is that it introduced this idea of your platform not being linear, but actually involving moving back and forth or around within a larger world. I think those are the defining hallmarks of what we want to call an arcade adventure. It's not just something like Zelda. You know, Zelda or the original adventure on Atari, they have the exploration element, and they have the item collection element but the pace of the game in an action adventure is much slower. It's not stuff coming at you all the time like a platformer or like a scrolling shooter or whatever. There's often a time limit involved just like in Mario or some of the early platformers. You can't really stop to take a breather. Sometimes if you clear a screen, you you might be able to stop on that screen before moving on, but it's like If you just kind of stay where you are, the action's going to find you. Something like a a Zelda game is a little more deliberate in the way it presents the action, if that makes sense.
0: It does a little bit. You're on the screen, things come in from the outside of the screen or are already spawned in there if you're already in the dungeons, and then you defeat everything on the screen. But once you defeat everything on the screen, you're pretty safe. You can just sit there and go, yep, I'm sitting here. Mm Mm-hmm long as you're not standing in the way of any traps, you're pretty safe. Right.
1: This definitely has more of an action quality to it. And it's really not a genre that you see in the United States or in Japan. I'm sure you can point to examples of games that are more like this in either market, because just about everything's been done by somebody. But the idea of this is a genre, the idea of this where you have multiple best-selling games all right in a row with similar kind of mechanics to it is kind of unique to the united kingdom so jet set willy is one of the two big games in 1984 that established the arcade adventure the other one is a little game called night lore from a little company called ultimate play the game which would later this is oversimplifying but would later be known as rare Now, it's really unfortunate. We've talked about this before. I mean, we talked about Ultimate. We talked about Night Lore when we did our British Software episode. It's really, really unfortunate that Chris and Tim Stamper, the founders of Rare and the founders of Ultimate Play the Game, do not give interviews. Do not. And they never have. They only gave two or three interviews the entire time that they were active in the 1980s as Ultimate Play the Game, making some of the most unbelievable games on the zx spectrum so it's not just that they don't give retrospective interviews they never gave interviews the company has always been very secretive as they've said in the very rare times that they have spoken they didn't do it to be secretive they were just so busy all the time they didn't want to bother (laughs) essentially and then after they grew some mystique you know, that's kind of how it started. And then once they grew some mystique, they were like, well, it makes sense to just continue along with this, you know, because mystique is good. Kind of the combination of those things and the fact that I think they are a little shy just kind of all coalesce together to make this situation where the Stamper brothers do not give interviews. Ultimate Play the Game is one of the most important companies in the evolution of the British computer game industry, and we know virtually nothing about them. So we can't know exactly where the rare strand, the ultimate play the game strand of arcade adventures came from. We can't know the influences fully. The first game that they did that was kind of arcade adventure was a game called Attic Attack. And we did talk about this. Some of this, again, is repeat. We, we did talk about this one. Attic Attack is not a platformer, so it's coming from a different family tree from Miner Two Thousand Forty Nine or Manic Miner, Jet Set Willy, etc. It's overhead view, but otherwise it's very similar to what's going on in a game like Jet Set Willy. You have a series of individual rooms. You have flick screen. You know you don't scroll. It's individual rooms of a dungeon or a castle or something that you're locked in. Every room has stuff moving around with it that you have to avoid or attack as you move through these different rooms. And you have to collect keys in order to get out. You're locked in this castle, and you have to collect all the keys to be able to combine them into the super key and open the front door and get out. So it's got item collection. It's got action. It doesn't have the platforming element, though. It's more similar to a Legend of Zelda-type game than Jet Set Willy is. Uh, in fact, I think I mentioned this in the previous episode, but one of the stampers, I forget which one, kind of cheekily said once that uh, The Legend of Zelda was Nintendo's attempt to copy Attic Attack.
0: Mm-hmm. I remember you saying that. Yeah.
1: They didn't. I mean, I, I don't think they really did. It's different enough. I mean, the one thing that's a little similar is that the overhead, top-down view of the individual dungeon rooms in the original Legend of Zelda game is very similar to the layout of Attic Attack. Just in the sense that it's top-down, but it's not quite top-down. It's slightly tilted towards the player, and then you have doors at your cardinal direction points northeast-southwest. But honestly, at
0: the time, how else are you going to do it?
1: Exactly. I mean, it's not like they copied the same textures, or the same color palette, or anything like that. It's just that they were both doing games where they were representing a kind of dungeon environment, and they were both doing it in the same top-down, faux-top-down kind of view. Zelda is a game that is meant to be played in a lot of sessions. I mean, you could blow through it in a day if you wanted, and if you knew where everything was, but... It's meant for you to save and quit and come back to later. There's lots to discover in it. Attic Attack takes place in a single dungeon, larger than any individual Zelda dungeon, but not as large as all the Zelda dungeons put together. The idea is to get out. It's fast action. It's meant to be played. It might take you more than one sitting, just in the sense that it takes you a long time to get good enough at the game to pass it, but it's meant to be played from start to finish in one sitting. It's not something that you save your progress in. That's really kind of another thing that separates the arcade adventure from the kind of action adventure game that you see in Japan. Is that after the very early ones, I mean, there was no saving on an Atari 2600. So, of course, Atari Adventure had to be played in one sitting. And if you didn't beat it in one sitting, sorry, you're out of luck. Though even that game, you could play in multiple sittings in the sense that you could map all of the screens and figure out where things were. So the next time you started over you had a better idea of what was going on. You know, they're meant to be played in multiple s- sessions. The exploration aspect of it is much greater. Your arcade adventure is, is not a game that you're saving in the middle of. Your arcade adventure is a game that you're playing from start to finish in a single sitting. Or you're working on, at it over the course of multiple days, multiple w- weeks to get better and better at it until you can finally get through it in one sitting. Just like... An arcade game, just like a run and gun or a uh, Super Mario game back in the day or something.
0: That's really where the arcade part of the name comes from, is that it's very much almost designed to eat your quarters, except you don't have quarters.
1: Right. So it has more exploration and more collection of stuff than most arcade games do. Obviously, there's some exceptions, but it's not a let's play this Let's conquer this world, explore and conquer this world over multiple weeks, like a Japanese action adventure would be. So that's another divergence point. So Attic Attack is kind of an arcade adventure, but it's, it's almost like it's stuck in between. And I talked about this last time. I assume that it takes its inspiration from Atari Adventure on the 2600. I could be completely wrong about that. We have nothing from the Stamper Brothers. It's believable that they would be aware of what was going on on the 2600 because before they were doing Ultimate Play the Game, they were actually working for an arcade company called Zilek that was one of the very few arcade game manufacturers in the United Kingdom. So they were more dialed in to what was going on in the international scene because they were involved in a market in which Britain was very much in the minority. So you kind of had to be looking outside of your own market to see what was going on internationally to be able to do something that would be competitive in that market. So even though the 2600 was not common in the United Kingdom, it was exported to the United Kingdom, and it just kind of makes sense that they would know what was going on. And it's got some of the similarities. It's got the top-down view. It's got the need to collect items within a castle. It's got a need to collect keys to get into places. It had the need to collect keys to open doors within a castle. It has just enough in common with what's going on in a game like Atari Adventure that you figure that that's kind of the lineage. It's more action-y than Atari Adventure is. It's definitely faster paced. I mean, there are enemies, there are the dragons in Atari Adventure, but they don't show up on every screen. You don't have to fight them all the time. In Attic Attack, in every room, there almost, there's something coming at you. So it's taking it more in an action direction, but it's still not kind of got all the elements of an arcade adventure. So then moving on from that, they decided they wanted to get really fancy. If there's one thing that the Stamper brothers have always been known for, it's pushing the envelope graphically way farther than anyone possibly thought it could be.
0: And no one can seem to replicate it very well.
1: (laughs) Right. Uh, You know, obviously Donkey Kong Country is the most famous example of this, at least in the United States. Just as famous, and I don't believe that's an exaggeration, just as famous in the United Kingdom is what they did with Night Lore. With Night Lore, they took the basic idea of Attic Attack, that you are moving through multiple rooms of a place, in this case it's a wizard's lair, and collecting things. In this case, you're a werewolf. Uh, It actually has a day-night cycle, so you turn into a werewolf at night. And you have 40 days and nights, because it's on a timer, which was a real hallmark of a lot of the early arcade adventures. You have 40 days and nights to collect all the items you need around this lair to take to the wizard so that he can cure you of your lycanthropy. But instead of having this top-down view, it was a slightly cheated top-down view, but it was still really a top-down view, they figured out a way to do a true axiomatic or isometric perspective on a ZX Spectrum, which was an absolutely unbelievable feat. ZX Spectrum is is a pretty puny machine overall. There's no way <laughs> it should be able to do something like that. And, uh, you know, the technical side of it is kind of out there. I'm, I'm not a technical person. I'm going to kind of gloss over that. But they figured out a way to draw the graphics that there would essentially be holes that would create background spaces behind other active elements of the graphics. So you could have a character walk behind a pillar and that character would disappear when they were behind that pillar. I mean, it had that true kind of three-dimensional quality to it. Within an isometric perspective, it's not full 3D. But this true kind of 3D environment, it made it feel like you were in a real world, almost. In this one, then, they added in the platforming aspect. Because in top-down, you can kind of do platforming, but it's not very interesting platforming. I mean, Link's Awakening, for instance, has you jump over holes occasionally with the rock's feather, but top-down platforming is not very interesting platforming. But once you go isometric, you can add those platform elements back in. And that's what they did. So there's lots of platforms in the stages. There are lots of blocks that essentially serve as platforms that you have to bounce around, jump around to get to items. And then there are some items that are in places where there are no platforms, and you actually have to move other objects within the game world over to some kind of position where you can then use them, get on top of them to reach these items. All of a sudden, you're taking some of these elements that were in Attic Attack, the action elements, the exploration elements, and the uh, collecting things elements, And you're adding back in that platforming action. And were they inspired by uh, Manic Miner? I don't know. Again, we don't know what the Stampers
0: were doing. If you know them, send them Alex's way. Oh, gosh.
1: No, no, seriously. They, They talk to nobody. There are plenty of people that know the Stampers. I mean, other people at Rare have given plenty of interviews. We know a lot about Rare's later games stuff from the Super Nintendo on. We know a lot about Donkey Kong Country. We know a lot about GoldenEye. We know a lot about Banjo-Kazooie because it wasn't primarily the Stampers working on those games. It was other people at the company. I mean...
0: People People willing to talk.
1: Yeah, people that know the Stampers and I'm sure still have their email addresses or phone numbers have given interviews. It's just the Stampers are not the type that want to do that kind of thing. I would hope that at some point... They'll sit down with some historian and and give a full oral history. I mean, I really hope they do. I mean, yeah, they don't want to give an interview to every enthusiast magazine or enthusiast news publication that comes along. But I would hope that they would be cognizant enough of the importance of their history to at least sit down with somebody once in their lives before they go. Because there's just so much of the early British industry and the evolution of it that is lost. ...by not having their input. It's, it's very tragic from a historical perspective. So they made this with the platforming added into everything else... ...and it's a true arcade adventure. It's kind of the other branch. You have your Jet Set Willy-style adventure... ...which is a side-scroller... ...where you're exploring multiple screens, collecting things... ...and then you have your Night lore derived ...which is isometric. Individual rooms tend to have fewer enemies... ...than in your straight-platforming ones but they have the isometric platforming action. They have the obstacles to avoid. Sometimes they have the concept of gaining new abilities in them as well or new items that allow you to progress further in this more isometric kind of space. Night Lore is so far ahead of what everyone is doing at the time they have it done. They literally sit on it for a year. They don't release it when it's done. They go back and do a more primitive side-scrolling arcade adventure kind of game called Sabrewolf instead of releasing Nightlore. And they take the time in between those releases, while they're living off of Saberwolf, to create a second game similar to Nightlore called Alien 8. Because they knew that as soon as Nightlore hit, the whole industry was going to be blown away. Everyone would start copying what they were doing. And so they wanted to have the sequel. It's not a direct sequel. It's just a sequel in the sense of using the same gameplay and the same kind of engine lined up before they actually released the first game so that they could get a second game out and make as much money on that as they could before the inevitable clones started eating away at their market share.
0: Makes sense. Some very impressive forethought.
1: Yeah, I mean, these were shrewd guys. I mean, they were always so far ahead. Even their earliest games on the spectrum were just leagues and leagues ahead, streets ahead of what anyone else was doing they were by far the most impressive group of people working on the ZX Spectrum. So you have Night Lore and you have Alien 8. So now you've got these two lineages. And both of those lineages continue forward. Kind of in the side-scrolling action piece of it, you get this trend towards mascot characters. I mean, Minor Willy is kind of a... He's not really a mascot character, but he's at least, he's a character that's in both games. I mean, he's in both Minor Willy and Jet Set Willy, and they were working on Jet Set Willy 2. Well, there was a Jet Set Willy 2, which was essentially a port of Jet Set Willy to other platforms where the guys doing the port basically finished the original game. Like, the original game was supposed to have a few more screens than it did. But Matthew Smith was having trouble with his disk drive. It was corrupting sectors, and so he couldn't fill all the sectors of the drive. He ended up four rooms short that he meant to be because he couldn't finish the game because of his faulty hardware. So when Jet Set Willy 2 was made, it was really taking the original Jet Set Willy, porting it to other systems, and then adding a few more rooms. Matthew Smith didn't work on it, a couple other guys did, and filling it out more. There was supposed to be a real sequel to Jet Set Willy that came out after that, but... You know how I told you that uh, Matthew Smith was not necessarily working his hardest during the creation of Jet Set Willie? He wasn't working his hardest after the creation of Jet Set Willie, and so barely any work was ever done on it. (laughs) He and his friends were basically goofing off all the time and never got another one out. Minor Willie was kind of a mascot-style character, but he wasn't really (laughs) a mascot-style character. As the action games continued, this became a prime genre in order to try to do mascot characters. And, you know, that was really true in Japan as well. I mean, Super Mario Brothers, Sonic the Hedgehog, Bubsy the Bobcat, and all of these characters that were created, maybe not all of them were created to be mascots at the point of inception, but all created to be characters that could be used across multiple games and that would build a following across multiple games. This is something that was done in the United Kingdom as well, and it was mostly done with these arcade adventures. And again, there's no mystery to that. Platform games tend to have characters that are a bit more well-defined, a bit larger, a bit more detailed than a run-and-gun. And certainly, you know, it's an actual character and not a spaceship or something like in a shooter game. So it lends itself to having characters with some degree of personality to them. So just as the platform game became a prime way to create uh, recognizable characters that could appear across multiple games in Japan, so too did the arcade adventure become kind of the same platform for this kind of stuff in the United Kingdom. It really focused on everyman. I think I'm not a, an anthropologist, really, so I, I want to be careful when I say things like this, but... England is a very class-conscious society. We've talked about that before. I mean, really class-conscious. I think for a lot of the bedroom coders, a lot of the bedroom coders, not all of them, but a lot of the bedroom coders were kind of working class. You know, their parents were working class. I think the idea of an everyman kind of hero, therefore was very appealing within the context of the British computer game industry, if
0: that makes sense. It does. So what would make a good everyman character?
1: Well, of course, Minor Willie was one himself. Um, That goes without saying. One of the first ones to appear was actually an auto mechanic by the name of Wally Week. Wally Week was designed by the owner of a company called Microgen. Wasn't the programmer on the game, but uh, the owner kind of came up with this basic character concept as something that he was hoping to create a franchise around. He was deliberately built to be kind of this goofy everyman kind of that you might see in certain uh, Sunday morning cartoon strips that's kind of simple bumbling through life and getting things done because he was trying to create a franchise. And actually, the first game the character was in, uh, a game called Automania was actually more of a pure platform game. You see, that was released in 1984. That was released in the same year that both Night Lore and Jet Set Willy came out. So it's still more emulating what's going on in the arcade more than what's going on yet with this new arcade adventure genre. It's a little like Burger Time. It's not really a direct clone of Burger Time, but in the sense that he's assembling an object. In Burger Time, you're assembling hamburgers by moving around platforms. And in Automania, you're assembling automobiles by moving around platforms. But it, it's definitely more of a pure action game. But he wanted to carry this character forward. He wanted to keep using him in new games. And then after Jet Set Willy and Night Lore are out, you have this new template for this arcade adventure. So, the second game in the series, the one that really gained a lot of attention for the first time, Pajama Rama, really took its cue from the Jet Set Willy game. I mean, even to the extent of involving a bed as a key plot point, because our friend uh, Wally Week needs to get to work, but he is tired and he is oversleeping, and his alarm clock has wound down because he has a wind-up alarm clock. While he's sleeping, his, like, spirit form can, like, leave his body and wander around his house, because reasons. So your job is to explore his house, avoiding enemies, avoiding obstacles, gathering items needed to progress, until you ultimately find the key to the alarm clock and take it back to his bedroom so he can wind his alarm clock and wake up and not get fired or something. So it's another house exploration game, just like Jet Set Willy. The difference between Pajama Rama and Wally Week and Jet Set Willy is this spawns a whole series of games. And as the games go on, they actually get more action y at the expense of some of the arcade adventure elements. But they're still item collection and stuff. So they're still arcade adventures. They just move in a slightly more action y direction. And he gets a whole family. So there are multiple characters that get controlled in later games. But it's a whole franchise. This idea of creating a franchise around an arcade adventure kind of starts with Wally Week. So you've kind of got the spectrum of the more actiony, you've got the spectrum of the more explorationy kind of all within this framework of the uh, arcade adventure. And then you also have this idea of mascot characters. I think the mascot character thing really reached its high watermark with a series called Dizzy. Dizzy was created by the Oliver Twins, another couple of bedroom coders. So many of these people are bedroom coders. He is quite simply an egg. An egg.
0: Yes. Like Humpty Dumpty.
1: Yes, and there was a reason for this. They were really into creating a fully realized animated character, more so than, than some of these other people before him. They had recognizable characters, but they didn't have a lot of animation going on or expressiveness going on. But on the ZX Spectrum, that was very difficult to do. If you have a human figure and you have to have a head and arms and legs and a torso and all of this, that leaves very little space on your sprite to do much with facial expressions. I mean, that's even true on on games in the West. I mean, look at Mario Brothers or Super Mario. I mean... You can see that he's got a face, you can kind of make out what his face is, but there's really not much expressiveness going on there in the very early games in the series. So they decided if they were going to have an expressive character, the only way they were going to be able to do it was by making the character basically all face. So what was a logical construct that could be all face? An egg or a circle. Exactly. So they decided to make him an egg for that reason. Again, the the first Dizzy game was much more of a platformer than it necessarily was an arcade adventure, but like some of these other series, as it progressed, they added more and more of an item collection aspect to it. Even though it's further on the action side of the spectrum, it's still very much an item collection game as well. So you have this progression of arcade adventure games that are basically starting as platformers in the traditional sense, as you saw in the arcade, and then it's about adding something more. In the case of Dizzy, the the first game, it had deliberately simplified action so that there could be a little more emphasis on puzzles. But then with the second game, Treasure Island Dizzy, they deliberately took the focus away from avoiding obstacles and dealing with enemies, even though that didn't entirely go away and really put the focus on building a larger world. So they actually stuck Dizzy on this island, and Dizzy needs to get the pieces together for a boat so that he can leave the island, and also needs to collect a bunch of coins scattered around the map as well before he can get off. And they put in an inventory system where he actually sometimes had to collect certain items before he could collect certain other items to get off the island. So it's much more of a puzzle element than an action element, and that truly is what makes it more of an arcade adventure. So they really, again, on their second game, decided to open up the world in the same way that so many of these other series have opened them up in a second or third chapter after kind of getting their feet wet with the idea in a first game. And so Dizzy is probably the most successful of these side-scrolling protagonists, He appeared in a lot of games on the ZX Spectrum. Each game, (laughs) at least up to a period of time, sold progressively more than the one before. The first Dizzy was kind of a sleeper hit, and then the second game sold more, and then the third game sold more, and it became this phenomenon. And so you have kind of this pantheon of side-scrolling, mascot-driven arcade adventure games that were a very important part of the experience on the ZX Spectrum. On the other end of it, you had a lot of people that were inspired by Nightlore. When Nightlore came out with that isometric world that really felt almost like a living cartoon in the context of the times. I mean, it doesn't look like Dragon's Lair or anything, but in the context of what people were used to. It just felt like a living cartoon. It was kind of the same effect as when King's Quest came out in the United States. King's Quest was not isometric in the same way, but it had that faux 3D perspective where if you walked behind a tree, you would vanish behind the tree. It made it feel like you were in a larger world that had real depth in it. And this isometric view and being able to disappear behind pillars, whatever, had kind of a similar impact uh, in the same year, ironically enough, in the United Kingdom. The epitome, the kind of pinnacle of this style of game was really created by a fellow named John Rittman. John Rittman was another one of these bedroom programmers, coders, bedroom coders, that went way back and was creating really slick games from the very early days of the British computer scene. He created some really good shooters for a company called Arctic Software. Then he ended up creating one of the first really well-regarded soccer games, football games, called Match Day in 1984 that was a massive hit. But then when he saw Nightlore, he was just so blown away by it that he knew that he had to recreate that. He had to do something similar. He had to figure out how it was done and make his own game in this style. He did. I mean, he basically he created a very similar engine to the Filmation engine, which is what the Stamper brothers called it, that powered Nightlore. But he took it a step further because he added a kind of almost Metroid-like aspect to it. And this is pre-Metroid. So the British are getting this idea of different abilities to access different areas or to complete different challenges at about the same time that you're starting to see that in Japanese games like Metroid. But the game he's coming up with is actually uh, released in 1986. It's released before Metroid hits the West. He takes this concept, this engine of his, to Ocean. He did Match Day for Ocean, so he has a relationship with Ocean Software, and shows it to them, and they're just blown away, and they have the Batman license. And they decide that this would be a perfect game to kind of showcase that Batman license. So he creates a Batman game in the style of Night Lore. And the big thing here is that he gives Batman a lot of abilities. He decides on a feature set because Batman is a character that obviously lends himself to abilities based on all of his wonderful toys. Where does he get them? Well, in this case, he gets them by exploring a series of isometric rooms full of platforms to traverse as he reconnects with all of his lost abilities, which allows him to get to other areas and collect other things and beat the game. Wait a minute, I
0: played this game. It's called Arkham Asylum.
1: (laughs) I suppose so, in a way. Arkham Asylum, incidentally, is a British game, though. I mean, there's really no connection. Obviously, uh, Arkham Asylum is far more inspired by Metroid. But Batman, released in 1986, is really a pre-Metroid kind of game. The premise of the game is that good old Robin has gotten himself kidnapped, and Batman has to collect the seven pieces of his bat craft. I think it's kind of a hovercraft thing in this. It may be meant to be the Batmobile. I'm not entirely sure. But in order to go find Robin, he has to put his bat vehicle back together. Doing that requires him to traverse a bunch of rooms that are very similar to the rooms that are found in Night Lore. The twist, as I said, is that he has abilities. So there are four different abilities that he needs to complete the game that control his jumps and his falls and whatnot in various ways. And as he progresses, he has to actually find those abilities so that he can use them to get to still other areas of the map. So it's got that additional kind of inventory-based puzzle element to it, uh, just like Dizzy, Treasure Island Dizzy that we talked about. Another interesting aspect of it is it actually does have something of a save system, which is new for arcade adventures. We talked about that one of the distinguishing features between a game like this and a Zelda or a Metroid is that they're meant to be played start to finish in one sitting. This one actually allows you to restart when you lose all your lives from the last item you collected rather than making you go all the way back to the beginning. So between the save system and the inventory system, it comes a little closer to a Zelda-type action-adventure game, but it's still very much in the arcade-adventure genre. After that, he does something even more fantastical, and this is, this is the game that is probably considered the absolute pinnacle of the arcade-adventure genre on the ZX Spectrum, or at least the absolute pinnacle of this isometric style of arcade adventure, and that's a game called Head Over Heels. Ritman's collaborator on Batman was an artist named Bernie Drummond. Like so many of the people working on these early British games uh, and doing the art for these early British games, Bernie had this real sense of whimsy and surrealism in the characters that he created, something that is not too surprising when you look at the history of, of British comedy. I mean... So many of these people were influenced by Monty Python, for instance, which has that surreal quality to it. He came up with these characters, Bernie Drummond did, where one was the the lower portion of a body and the other was kind of the upper portion of a body, head and heels. John Ridman just really loved these and decided that uh, as a follow up to Batman, uh, the cool thing that he could do is have two separate characters that start in two completely different parts of this maze of this series of rooms, each with their own set of abilities, and then at some point have them come together so that they can join together and, and do things together. They can, you know, reconnect their bodies. Head and heels can become essentially head over heels. And then when their powers combine, they have even more ability to navigate this space. And so that was the concept behind uh, head over heels. Just by having two characters that had to combine to solve puzzles, you immediately opened up even more intriguing possibilities for puzzle solving and uh, for navigating this space. That was really kind of the high watermark of this style of game. Once you got into the 16-bit systems, these kind of slower isometric games were kind of giving way to more action-packed games because your Commodore Amiga, with its blitter and its copper and its advanced graphics chip and everything, could really push pixels really well and was really well-suited to fast action and scrolling. So kind of the advent of the 16-bit computers is kind of the beginning of the end for this genre, because the unique characteristics of the ZX Spectrum that almost required you to have a slower more thoughtful game like this just wasn't as necessary on the 16-bit systems. Arcade adventure games didn't completely go away, but they definitely became faster-paced and more action-like. Where does that leave us, then, with the arcade adventure? Well, the concept never really spread beyond Europe. It didn't really directly... Influence what happened in the United States or Japan. Since the British computer game market was largely subsumed by the far greater US and Japanese console markets once they really started penetrating the United Kingdom in the 1990s, there really wasn't a lot of carrying forward of the specific arcade adventure genre. But the spirit of the arcade adventure. And the spirit of having more thoughtful spaces in which you platform is something that very much did carry forward. I think a game like Tomb Raider only comes along in the United Kingdom because you already have this idea of puzzle solving within a multi-tiered platformed space, if that makes sense.
0: That does. So instead of just running around, shooting all the bad guys and bouncing around as a girl, you have this ability to go, oh, right, I have shot the horrible monster. The horrible monster drops a bone. Well, if I take this bone and shove it into this slot here and pull down, it makes the gate go up. And that lets me get to point B, which then lets me open this door, get this key... Yeah, I can see how this works.
1: Yeah, that's really sounding like an arcade adventure. And contrast that to what the Japanese did. You know, when the Japanese went 3D on the PlayStation and had action games with light puzzle-solving elements, you got Survival Horror, you got Resident Evil and Silent Hill. You got games where you had to sometimes collect items and then use those items somewhere else in the level, but... Calling them puzzles is almost giving them too
0: much credit.
1: I mean, there's there's not much puzzling out of anything to them.
0: I think really the distinction is, I think in the arcade adventure, you have multiple puzzles going on at the same time mm-hmm. and you can solve them in any order. Right. While with Japanese puzzles of Silent Hill and Resident Evil, it's the puzzle of the moment. Right. You are given this item or you have to find this item within this local area. And this is the gatekeeper to proceed. While in an arcade adventure, you can proceed for quite a while before you hit that sort of, okay, I really need to get this item. Exactly.
1: So a game like Tomb Raider, even though it's not an arcade adventure, it's something new. Because bringing it into full three dimensions automatically transforms it into something new. You see that lineage of the arcade adventure, and obviously Tomb Raider becomes a hugely popular and influential game. So that's one of the main areas where the arcade adventure, I think, influences internationally. Certainly some of the uh, kind of collect-a-thon kind of games, where you're having to collect a million different items in a stage, like Banjo-Kazooie, which is a rare game, so it's a British game. You know, it's a 3D platformer kind of in the vein of Super Mario 64, but the collection element of it is far, far greater Than the collection element of Super Mario 64. I mean, that's a collection game, but again, you're mostly just collecting one thing at a time. Here's the star of the moment, go get it. Yes, within a level, sometimes you can choose which star you're going for, even if it says you're on star number one. Maybe star number three is accessible, but not always. Sometimes you have to choose the particular star. In order to have the level set up in such a way that you can get that star. You know, the Japanese way is still a little more pinched off, even when it's somewhat open world collection. Whereas Banjo-Kazooie, here's the level. There's so many musical notes in it. There's so many this in it. There's so many that in it. Go get them. Another one like that would probably be Psychonauts. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Psychonauts has some of that in it as well. It stays with us. It it stays with us even today, even though the arcade adventure was never uh, a big thing outside of uh, Britain and Europe. Just certain elements of it, the idea of being turned loose within a world to collect, 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 or the idea of being turned loose in a world that's kind of multi-tiered or multi-leveled and having to solve a series of puzzles in order to progress while also occasionally shooting every endangered species you can find, and dinosaurs, because that kind of, you know, all plays into modern games. And it's something that is very uniquely British. It's not quite as big a contribution as the open world game is. You know, we did the Elite episode where we really showed how Elite and then moving on to Grand Theft Auto was so important to Defining that style of game, it's not quite as significant a contribution as that, but it, it does stand as another one of Britain's kind of more important contributions to the, the international gaming scene.
0: I think that it's fair to say that none of this would have really happened had it not been for the ZX Spectrum. If they mm-hmm. had a Commodore 64 or other more advanced computers becoming the dominant home computer you wouldn't have the necessity to slow things down in order to make this stuff happen. I imagine some of these games, especially the more popular ones, were ported over to the Commodore 64 and other computers of the era. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. They all originated primarily on the ZX Spectrum. Exactly. All right. I think that pretty much covers the highlights of the arcade adventure genre. What horrors do we delve into next time?
1: Well, I think we should keep the international
0: aspect of things going for a little bit. Hi, international listeners.
1: We have an episode on the real birth of the Japanese arcade industry. We do. We have an episode on kind of the real birth of the Japanese console industry. Fairly recently. <laughs> That leaves one major segment of the market that we have not examined the origins of. The computer game industry. Wait, Japan had a
0: computer game industry? Lies! They did, and it was very important. Wait, important? They did console. That's all they ever did. (laughs) I live in America. This is the truth. Yes, well, even in Japan, once
1: the Famicom came along, that was kind of the beginning of the end for a fully flourishing, fully vibrant, fully alive Japanese computer game industry. Not that computer games vanished there. But even in Japan, the Famicom just dominated things so much that consoles became kind of that primary platform to deliver games. In that primordial period before the Famicom, that same period where we talked about crazy developments in consoles and crazy developments in the arcades, you had a period of time... Where you had a real thriving hobbyist culture, hobbyist computer culture, just like you did in the United States and in the United Kingdom. A lot of the people that were involved in that scene would really set the stage for the kinds of games that would then become successful when
0: the Famicom came about just a few years later. And I imagine also these games would be unique due to the hardware limitations and setup of the time, because Japanese computers, home computers, were very, very different from ones in Europe and ones in the United States. Sort of like how the ZX Spectrum really defined the British computer scene, and the Apple II defined the American computer scene. Something else must have really defined the Japanese one.
1: I suppose we'll find out.
0: <laughs> Look forward to it. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.